Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome to Divisible Conservative Christians Unleashed here on True Radio Presents on Blog Talk Radio Network. I'm your host, Divisible One himself. We have a powerful show tonight. I'm going to stir up a little controversy like I usually do with one of my very good friends. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Divisible Conservative Christians Unleashed here on True Radio Presents. Ah, So, this week, getting right into our headlines, at 17 we'll head into a break, but hmm, dealing with um, ignorance. Liberal professor calls for genocide says white males should commit suicide. Okay, I'll read the article. (laughs) On his last day of teaching at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design, Professor Noel Ignatiev reportedly received a standing ovation when he told his class that white males are a cancer and they should kill themselves. Jim Hoft reported at the Gateway Pundit Monday, citing an interview posted at the Diversity Report. If you are a white male, you don't deserve to live. You are a cancer. You are a disease. White males have never contributed anything positive to the world. They only murder, exploit, and and oppress non-whites. At least a white woman can have sex with a black man and make a brown baby. But what can a white male do? He's good for nothing. Slavery, genocides against aboriginal peoples, and massive land confiscation, the Inquisition, the Holocaust, white males are all to blame. You maintain your white privilege only by oppressing, discriminating against, and enslaving others, he said, according to Ivan Fernando. Fernando, who wrote the piece at the Diversity Report called Ignitaev's comments sound and reasonable, words that resonate with every enlightened and progressive mind. They are indisputable and no one can debate them, he added, calling those who object to Egnatayev's outrageous call far-right extremists. Fernando said he spoke to Egnatayev about his statement in a phone interview. According to Fernando's account, Tayev doubled down on his comments attributing criticism to white supremacist attitudes. The goal of destroying the white race is simply so desirable. It boggles the mind trying to understand how anyone could possibly object to it, he said. He went on to explain that those who object to his call for genocide are themselves white supremacists. They wish to go on oppressing and exploiting other races and maintaining their own privileged positions of power. That is the conscious and sometimes subconscious motivation of all my critics. 
That is why they object to destroying the cancer of humanity known as the white race. That ugly disease which dares to call itself a people and a culture, he explained. When asked if only white males need to be exterminated, Ignatiev said that the entire race needs to be wiped off the face of the earth. Obviously, all whites need to be destroyed, but why not start with white males? They are behind most of history's greatest atrocities, he said. While acknowledging in rather colorful terms that black men like to have sex with white women. <laughs> Eventually, white women can be bred out. But my feeling is that if you are a white male, you should kill yourself now. If you are a thoughtful person with a, with a social consciousness who considers himself white, you will consider suicide. It's the right thing to do, he added. Any in interview, he read an email supposedly received from someone who took offense at his suggesting and called it absurd and irrational. Fernando apparently agreed with Ignatiev's assessment. Ignatiev also slammed Christianity, Jesus Christ, and the celebration of Christmas. Christians, Christmas and white cultures disgust me, he said. I hate this time of year so much. I hate going outside and seeing Christmas trees or Christmas lights. should be banned. A Christmas tree is just one notch above a burning cross, in my opinion. <laughs> okay, folks, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Not only is Ignatiev white, he has a long history of controversial remarks. The Ten Times reported in 2002 that Ignatiev, a fellow at Harvard's W.E.B. Du Bois Institute and a man described as a one-time steel worker and Marxist activist, expressed a desire to abolish the white race, echoing the statements he allegedly made in his class. Ignatiev, who did not appear willing to lead by example, told Fernando that that reaction to his creed has been largely positive. Perhaps we are finally coming to an awareness in this country that the cancer known as the white race must be obliterated, especially in the form of white males, he said. He then went on and he then went into full Hitler mode, suggesting suggesting death camps for white people. Eventually, I would like to put white males in concentration camps and work them just like they've done to everyone else. When they are all dead, we can throw a party and dance around their corpses, he said. I certainly hope so, Fernando said in agreement. I hope you are right. If so, it is the dawning of a new era of peace and progress. In February 2011, we first opined that liberalism is an ideology of hate and rage. Ignatiev and those who support this call for genocide has once again proven our theory that liberalism has become an ideology of genocidal hate and rage. Neither Ignatiev nor the Diversity Report has responded to our request for comment. 
update. Professor Ignatayev responded after this article was published. He did not deny the quote attributed to him, saying only that he had received a number of emails about the same topic in the last 48 hours. The diversity report still has not responded to our inquiries. All righty. Where do I even begin to start? Where do I even begin to start? Well, let's just start with the irony of ironies. The guy was white himself. The guy was white himself. And (laughs) I don't even know where to even start with that individual. That's the filth that we have teaching our kids in the colleges and universities. And you wonder why college students are coming out dumber than a box of rocks. And I include all the Ivy League schools in that in that dumber than a box of rocks equation as well. When they mentioned that he was a part of the W. E. B. Du Bois fellow institute, whatever. That told me all I needed to know right there. Because, folks, for those of you, W.E.B. Du Bois was a well-known Marxist, a hater of the black community. W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the founders of the NAACP, was also a rabid racist. This man did not like his skin color. He hated his own race. Isn't it kind of ironic, though, how he was a part of the founding of the NAACP? Go figure. I am going to give you all another example of... Just how whack my friend Bill Woman gained a sort of notoriety when he put a sticker on his company truck that said, Not hiring until Obama's out of office. So I'm going to play a copy of a text or voicemail that he received. And I must warn you, this is not safe for work. So if you have any kids around, I advise you to cover their ears. So we're going to take a short two-minute, 23-second break while I pick while I play this clip and then we'll come back with the rest of the 
headlines, and we'll have our guests at the bottom of the hour. You're listening to the conservative Christian Unleash. Hello, America. This is the other bill for America. I'm the guy with the sign on my truck. Now, I'm not hiring until Obama's gone. That is strictly a prediction because he is destroying our economy. But, as promised, I've promised a few Patriot friends on Facebook that I would post a video that um, would bring to light the last phone call I got last night at 11.16 p.m. my time here on the Eastern Seaboard of one of my new liberal friends from Wisconsin. He says his name is John, and i got to call my uh, uh, voicemail to be able to retrieve this message and allow you to hear it. It's impressive for somebody of sub-intellectual character. Yeah. Bear with me on this video thing. It's new to me, and i got to... Uh, Fine-tune fine tune it as best I can and get one. First saved message. Here's that. Yeah, my name is John. I was uh, wondering if you guys were hiring yet. Entertaining, huh? The Muslim's still in office, I guess. Come you on. You piece of shit. Pick up the pace, John. Soon I'll be standing right behind you. Ooh. Fear. See you fucking loser. You're, you're fucking part of the reason why this fucking country is the way, the way it is. Yada, yada, yada. Cheap, man, you piece of shit. Hmm. Well, John, I want to thank you for your contribution. And, uh, I have posted on Facebook. If anybody wants to contact him and let him know that they are in support of him, or maybe discuss his feelings for my terrible capitalist beliefs, please please don't hesitate to do so. But uh, I will be posting this video shortly, and uh, God bless all patriots, Semper Fi Marines. Now, I'm a little busy, so i got to get to work. I'll talk to you later. You have a blessed day. And there you have it. <laughs> I'm telling you, folks, Progressivism is a mental disease. Almost to the point, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it would be, it would be wrong for me to suggest that a progressive is like a horse with a leg broken in five different places that needs to be put out of his misery. But I digress. <laughs> Say it tongue-in-cheek, but liberals actually want to kill you. So let's get back to discussing the article. Ignatayev a white liberal professor from Massachusetts College of Arts and Science. That should tell you all you need to know right there. Going for the genocide of all white men. 
he really must not like himself or something. I don't know what it is, but that guy must not like himself. He's going for the eradication of his own people. Oh, you know what, what I think it is? Because he was a part of the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute. I think he might think he a black man trapped in a white man's body. Because he showed him black men and white women quite a bit in that in that interview. But I digress. That individual calling for those type of things, he's the kind of individual that you would call a self hating white man. Because he hates himself. He hates his own race. Personally, someone needs to lock him up in a mental institution and throw away the key and not let him out, seriously. Because any time you call for the entire eradication of an entire race, dude, you have serious issues, and you need to deal with them for real. And then you want to talk about how much you hate Christians. Well, okay. That's your right. I don't hate you. Personally, I feel sorry for you. To be so full of hatred and rage and not know why. To have a life so miserable that you have no hope to falsely prop yourself up because you have no hope. The word says that hope is in Christ Jesus, but unfortunately, because you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you have no hope. You put your hope in your own abilities, and apparently you couldn't do much because that's why you ended up as a college Professor Spewing Garbage. On to the next headline. (sighs) Video shows it's Islamic extremists threatening to sell abducted Nigerian schoolgirls. An an Islamic extremist has threatened to sell the 276 girl his terror group abducted from a school in northeast Nigeria three weeks ago. In a videotape screened by the Associated Press Monday, Koharam leader, I ain't even going to try to say that dude's name, claimed claimed responsibility for the April 15th kidnapping for the first time. He also threatened to attack more schools and take additional girls. I abducted your girls, said the leader of Boko Haram, which means Western education is sinful. He described the girls as slaves and said, by Allah, I will sell them into the marketplace. The hour-long video starts with fighters lifting automatic rifles and shooting in the air as they claimed, Ali Akbar, our God is great. 
The Pentagon said Monday it has not received any request to assist in the search for the teenage girls, but Secretary of State Kerry did vow Saturday that the U.S. would help Nigerian officials locate the schoolgirls in whatever way it can. White House Press Secretary Jay Carney also said Monday that the U.S. provides general counterterrorism assistance to Nigeria. I'm going to stop right there. I'm not going to read the rest of that article because it's, you know, it's depressing. But I'm going to talk... I'm gonna start with I'm gonna start with these these Muslims. They're black Muslims. Here's here's what apparently Muslims uh the black skin persuasion don't realize. Middle Eastern Arab Arab Muslims hate them. Yeah, you didn't know that? They consider darker-skinned Muslims the bottom of the food chain, if you will. All I can say to this article is this. You think that what you're doing is going to get you 72 virgins in paradise. It's going to get you something, but it's not going to be what you think. Because I can tell you this, the word of God is very clear that every knee shall bow willingly or unwillingly, and every tongue will confess willingly and eventually unwillingly that Jesus Christ is Lord. But let me tell you when that unwillingly part comes in, when it's too late, when you're at the end of your days and you realize I had an opportunity. I was lied to by these false religions and these cults. But it'll be too late. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Period. End of discussion. I don't understand what's going on. Well, yeah, I do. I do understand what's going on in this world. But what I don't understand is all the hand-wringing people who are shaking and cowering in fear. What do you got to be afraid of? What do you got to be afraid of? The Word of God says, 
Don't feel those who can kill the body, but feel those that fear the one that can kill both the body and the soul in hell. We're going to take a, a break. After this, we're going to have our guest, a very awesome gentleman I love speaking to. And I think this is an interview. Those of you listening live and those of you who are going to catch it in archives are going to wish that you would have been here. So here's Krista Branch. I am America.
and welcome back to the Visible Conservative Christians Unleashed here on Blog Talk Radio and True Radio Presents. And yes, Annie, it is me, the Visible One himself, Thomas. Now, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while now. Let me give you a little background on how I met this woman. I was at Club where he was speaking, and he had came in. Everybody was eating, and he comes in, and there happened to be an open seat right beside me. And and I'm thinking to myself, okay, the speaker's gonna come over and sit by me. So I'm I'm just kind of like I'll just make sure I don't talk to him if he comes over and sits by me. Okay, he comes over there sits down right next to me, and we strike up a good conversation. I mean, while he was eating, we had an awesome conversation. And, folks, let me tell you something. This is a gentleman who is a um, award-winning author, film writer, and investigative reporter, as you're going to find out in some of the stories that he's going to share. But the thing that makes him who he is is that he treats people the way he wants to be treated. And he doesn't treat anyone any different because of, you know, maybe certain different demographics. This man has become a good friend to me. So I want everyone to join me in welcoming Mr. Jack Cashel. Hey, uh, Thomas, Visible. thank you for having me, sir. My, my, You're very my pleasure. welcome, Jack. Yes, sir. Um, Jack, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while, but before we get into uh, our questions and stuff like that, I just want I just want to get your take. Did you see the article, and I did my commentary on on it a little before you called in, about the professor who called for all white males to commit suicide. Yeah, I've seen that one. <laughs> and I, I want you to comment on that, please. Now, if I, you know, I just looked at the photo of the guy. Is this, he, what, what, he's Hispanic, right? No. <laughs> uh, is, he, is he white? Is, is he a white guy saying that? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean... There is a, you know, what, what uh, people learn in universities today, and they learn it now in grade school and high school, they learn to hate themselves. They learn right. to hate their culture. Uh, they just happen to be living in the, in the greatest culture the history of the world's ever produced. And it has its flaws. We know that. But it has enabled more people to live better than, than is imaginable just a century ago, you know. I mean, if you just want a, just one indicator – uh, you know, a hundred years ago, the average person lived to be 45 years old. Today, they live to be 75 or 80. I mean, if that's not, right. a, you know, just one indicator of progress. And yet these people hate themselves, and they project that hatred outwards. And actually, right. though, they usually give themselves an, an, an exclusion. Uh, I don't know if you know Shelby Steele, the author, who's a very good uh, sort of social philosopher. But he talks about the zone of decency. And what happens right. is that in the culture... 
uh, people place themselves in, in the zone of decency, and then they presume that everyone else is outside of it, and that way they can attack them. And we've seen so many examples of this lately in so many different ways that it makes your head spin. And uh, right, uh, and uh, it's just, and it's getting worse and worse, you know. And the zones are becoming more and more uh, narrow, so that sooner or later, even the people now who are doing the castigating will find themselves in the position where they're among the, those who are accused. And it, it's like a 17th century Salem, you know. It's like witchcraft trials, and and the people can't get enough of them, at least right now. Right. So now I want to ask here. I know I know what your thought is on this, what I'm about to ask you, because I heard his comments. Yeah. And I personally don't believe what Cliven Bundy said was racist. That's that's just me, point blank. Give me your well, give me your view on it. You know, you're adding the good Clive point. Bundy. Because, you know, at first, um, you know, it seems because. Cliven Bundy is pretty naive. You know, he doesn't know what the code words are, you know? So right. if he starts out with the word Negro, you know, the sophisticated people all of a sudden think that that he's uh, he must be a racist, except maybe the people who belong to the, you know, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People or the United Negro, you know, College Fund, I mean, where the words are still used. Uh, right. And then he, uh, he, you know, he's just artless. He's a 67-year-old guy living in the middle of Nevada. He doesn't seem to know much and yet when you look at his comments and even you know i was in the airport last week and that's why i missed i'm sorry i forgot i was supposed to you know i forgot the monday i was traveling but cnn had his like trailer up and it said does clive bundy have a point and the media were beginning to recognize that when people listen to what he said yes he did have a point and the point is this if you are enslaved to the federal government, and you depend on them from, you know, from everything you get from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed at night, from the moment you're born to the moment you die, are you materially freer? Are you materially better off than you were in the, in the days of slavery? That's what he's asking. Now, he, you know, like I say, he doesn't know the, the world of political correctness well enough to know that he's not allowed to ask that question, or he's not supposed to. But right. in his own artless way, yeah, he had a point. Now, in, um, up until, you know, 50, 60 years ago, the average black kid was born into a family with two parents. And the exactly. average black kid uh, didn't worry, the average black parent didn't worry that his son would be murdered before he was uh, 21 years old. The average black parent thought that his kid had a better chance of going to college than he did go to prison. Now, 50 years after Brown versus, uh, 60 years after Brown versus Board of Education, 50 years after the, you know, the Civil Rights Act in 1964, a, a young black male today has a better chance of going to prison than he does of going to college. And that's utterly crazy. And Bundy right. was, uh, in his own artless way, was hinting at some of the reasons why that is so. And yet the people right. who give themselves awards are the ones who go through life ignoring the problem or denying the problem. And the problem... Right. Uh, you can sum up in one word, and that's family. And uh, the government has done its best to destroy the family, and uh, unless the government does something to restore the family, uh, history is going to be very unkind to the people who are responsible. Right. Jack, let me ask you this question, cause, and I think I know this about you, but I want you to share this with um, 
with my listeners because one of the things that that I have noticed about you is that you do not allow political correctness to keep you from going after you know going after any story one thing that i've noticed jack is that you have you when other um journalists will shy away from stories you will go after stories that affect the black community even though you're not black well answer this question for me hold on let me ask you this why why is it that you're not afraid, but everybody else is cowering like uh, like they have rattles in their boots, but you're speaking truth to power? What I guess my question that I'm trying to get at is what brought you to that point to be so impartial and go after the truth the way you do when everybody else seems to be afraid to touch the issue of race, which we'll talk well, about you know, more I, later. I, I, I just... I'd attribute a lot of it to where I grew up. And that is I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, in a city that was more than half black. And, and I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, I, I remember once going up to my neighborhood. I played basketball as a kid. I mean, that was my thing. And so that put me in a world that was even blacker than, the, you know, the normal world. So I remember going up to my neighborhood playground once and counting heads. I just did for the hell of it. And it was 88 to 1, <laughs> you know. So, you know. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Under those circumstances, you you learn to uh, adapt, you know, and you learn you also learn about people, you know. Yeah, I knew there were some people there who wanted my head, but I knew there was a lot of other people who would who would hand the head to the people who wanted my head, you know. So you you, de- you learn to deal with people as individuals. And I had a, an odd conversation once with um, I wrote a book on Muhammad Ali, actually on, on professional boxing. Uh, it was unflattering mm-hmm. to Ali, but very flattering to Joe Frazier. And um, I was on, uh, I got an hour-long show on ESPN with Stephen A. Smith. Uh, you, you may be familiar with Stephen. Yeah. Who sometimes makes sense. And I mean, he's not a very charming guy, but sometimes he makes sense. And yeah. so the subject was about my book. They had on the show people like Jim Brown, who could still kick your butt at 75 or however old he is, you know, and, and these other people. And Smith asked me, he goes, hey, someone asked me on the show, have you ever been on a civil rights march? I said, yeah, I did one. I did civil rights march every day. They said, every day? I said, yeah, my civil rights march was home to this, uh, from my house to the playground and back again. <laughs> you know? And I said, if I could make that march every day, I was doing well. You know, So that, that's where that started. And then I, the secondary thing is this. Well, I'm self-employed, so that helps as well because I don't have to worry about you know, having an employer wrap my knuckles. But what, what the advantage is, Thomas, is that there are huge stories left out there because the media are afraid to touch them. And one story in which um, uh, the, the radical black community came to my support and defense was uh, in my reporting on the, the death of Ron Brown, the former Commerce Secretary, Secretary under Bill Clinton. Yes. Talk about and, uh, that a little bit. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the, what happens when the media are afraid to talk about these kind of stories. Ron Brown was killed in 1996 in a plane crash, a very, very right. suspicious death. And the U.S. Air Force, uh, it was their plane. They lost six of their own people on the plane. And uh, they were commissioned to put out a report on it. It took them probably about a year. And it was a 22-volume report. And it was done, you know, before uh, everything was done on this, so it was only on paper. 
and it was stored in Germany at the Ramstein Air Force Base. Well, in 1993, I set out to write this book on Ron Brown, and um, I realized that I, to do it well, I needed this Air Force report. So I requested it seven years after the crash, and the New York Times had a reporter on the crash who died in the crash. I was the first person to ask for the report. You wow. say to yourself, how is that possible? How is it possible that the New York Times, who lost the reporter, didn't even bother trying to find out what caused the plane to crash, even though they knew that there was uh, some very, very suspicious elements about the whole deal? And, and getting into the report, for instance, I learned that Ron Brown had been sent against his will on this final mission. But the, here was the mission. The mission was to broker a sweetheart deal between the fascists who ran Croatia, that's the Tudjman family, and a certain American corporation. It was very much in the news when I requested the report. The Enron Corporation, right? Wow. So I, I said, if nothing else, I should be able to interest the media in the fact that Ron Brown died on an Enron deal. And the Enron executives took their own jet, right? And... Uh, then here's even a more suspicious thing I learned in the report. This was fascinating. I, uh, in one part of the report, the uh, Air Force is interviewing the American ambassador to Croatia at the time, a guy named Peter Galbraith. And Galbraith says to the, uh, the investigator, he says, you know, the person you really need to talk to is this woman named Zdenka Agast. She is, Zdenka is uh, the liaison between Croatia and Enron. And at the last minute, she got off the Ron Brown plane, the Air Force plane, and got on the Enron jet, right? And the Air Force person says, that's exactly who we're looking for, right? So I go through the report. They have 150 interviews in the report. There's no interview with Zdenka Gast. So then I go online <coughs> excuse me, to see if I could find Zdenka. And I find her. I find a color picture of her from a Croatian equivalent of People's Magazine. And I'm looking at the photo. And here's Sedanka, big, good-looking, buxom redhead. And, on her, uh, and she has her arm around two other women. She's in the center. Under her right arm is Alexis Herman, the woman who sent Ron Brown on this fatal plane crash. And under her left arm is Hillary Clinton. Don't. Right? Oh, wow. I was about to say, don't say it. You said it. <laughs> so I immediately called my Croatian interpreter. I said, what am I reading? You know, what are we, you know, I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's a big fundraiser and Zdenka has, you know, bogarted her way into getting a picture with these two women. No, it's the wedding reception for Alexis Herman at the White House being hosted by the Clintons. There are only 40 people in attendance. And you've heard of everyone else but Zdenka Gast, right? And this was soon after Ron Brown was killed. Now, if I'm a reporter... I am. You think that the New York Times, uh, you know, the Washington Post, CBS, ABC, would be all over this story. But instead, right. when I took it to Washington, they refused to talk to me. And I, I scheduled, I remember I, I had an interview scheduled with this one guy from the Washington Post named Colby King, who's their minority affairs reporter. And there's a lot of pressure on King to tell the Brown story because a lot of, you know, prominent uh, black people, uh, you know, especially activists like Dick Gregory and uh, Walter Fauntleroy and 
these guys were coming to my aid. They said, we, you know, we've got to get this story out. Uh, King scheduled a meeting with me and then canceled the last second. wouldn't even say why. And all I wanted to do was talk about what was irrefutable. Let's talk about Enron. Let's talk about why Ron Brown was sent on this mission. So if, if you're a, a black in America, there's an excellent chance uh, that major stories have been denied to you. I'm going to give you two more examples, Thomas, of stories that I uncovered that, that were shocking when I discovered them. Now, you're a little younger than I am, but you're old enough to remember Waco, correct? Yes. yes. And, uh, and, and those, for those who don't remember this incident, this happened in 1993 under um, Janet Reno, Clinton's uh, Justice Department. They sent tanks in to destroy a religious community that had been resisting them. And they killed 80 people, including 20 children. Now, if I asked you, Thomas, or if I asked the average African-American who died that day, they would tell you, oh, it is a bunch of rednecks, you know, skinny white rednecks, uh, gun-toting rednecks, blah, 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 blah. Well, that, if I asked 100 Americans, 100 of them would tell me that answer. But I went in, and, uh, you know, I got the suspicion because I saw some of these images that came out afterwards. And so I went to the... um, the only way I could find the answer was to go to the log of those who died. And, uh, and they were listed by age and name and race. And of the 74 people who died on April 19, 1993, 39 of them, more than half, were racial minorities. 27 of them were black. Is there, is there a black person in America who knows that there are any black people at Waco? Not alone that they were the dominant uh, ethnic group? You know? Jack, 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 slow. Whoa. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you serious? Because just like (laughs) you just said, I assumed, because that's what was put out there, that it was all a bunch of redneck wackos. That's right. That's what they put out there. And had black America known in 1993 that the Clinton administration went in and killed 27 black people aged 6 to 60, uh, that would have been the end of the party. That would have severed the link between uh, African Americans and the Clinton administration or the Democratic Party. They would have said, this is incredible. How could this have happened? And then to be lied to, and then to create the illusion that these were all just gun-toting rednecks, you know. But that's the way the media roll, and uh, it's, uh, it's amazing what they get away with. I'm going to wow. give you an example that's, that's unrelated to race, but that happened to me just today, okay? Right. And, um, and I'm an independent reporter. No one pays my salary. You know, I mean, I, if I don't write a book or something, I'm not getting paid. So I, had, I made a call today because of this fellow, they were talking about him in the news, and everyone's saying, where is he? What's happened to him? His name is Nakula Basili Nakula. Do you know who he is? Yeah, isn't he the guy that was sh- – that- was shooting from the overpass? No, no, that that's, a, that's a, no, that's a pruder. This guy was, Nakula, he was shooting. He was the one who made the video that allegedly caused the Benghazi uh, incident. You know? Oh, got you. That's right. That's right. And um, I'm the only one in the media he will talk to. And, and the reason is this, and I didn't know this until today, is that six months after he was imprisoned, I tracked him down to a prison in the, in the middle of Texas where he was uh, confined to a special housing unit, which means he's in solitary. And 
You know what he told me today? He goes, I was the What's first that? person to contact him. I was the first person in the media to contact him. Six months after he was arrested for making a video, which is an utter, you know, a grotesque violation of, of all of our First Amendment rights. Six months later, I tracked him down to a Texas prison, and I was the only one in the media to do that, right? So that's how the media are. I mean, they don't want to know this guy. They don't want to know that the Obama administration put a man in prison for making a video about Muslims. Yet they will go to the Book of Mormon on Broadway and stand, you know, Hillary Clinton gave the Book of Mormon a standing ovation. Two hours of totally making fun of Mormons. So you can make fun of Mormons, but you can't make fun of Muslims? You know, I don't, I don't get this. We have, it's a total double standard. And, um, and we're all capable of being subjected to it. You know, for exactly. instance, I was just reading today about the, uh, the uh, African-American uh, director of health for the city of Pasadena, California. He was invited to be the commencement speaker at the um, – uh, this was, I guess, his, uh, Pasadena City College's uh, graduation. And then they found out that he had made controversial statements about homosexuality, and they uh, canceled his uh, engagement, right? Controversial statements may mean that something as simple as, you know, uh, men should marry women, you know. <laughs> that, was, that wasn't even controversial two years ago because Obama and Hillary Clinton were both on, on board for that, you know. Two years ago, right, and now, right. and now, you know, you could use lose your TV show because of it, or get knocked off a commencement address. And um, there are all of these um, little zones of decency, and they include uh, they protect Islam, they protect homosexuals, uh, they sometimes protect African Americans if they're liberal, if they're conservative, it's just the opposite. They get thrown into like a pit of hell, you know like Clarence Thomas right. or, you know, um, or Condoleezza Rice. She was just right. denied. They protested her speaking at Rutgers University. Rutgers University just paid $32,000 to have Snooky speak, you know, from Jersey Shore. Yeah, right. And, I remember uh, that. So your, uh, your race doesn't protect you if you, uh, if you think the wrong way, you know, the way they don't want you to think. So it's a, it's a dangerous world out there for anyone who's independently minded and who thinks his own thoughts, you know, and who's willing to speak out. But the way to make the world safer is for everyone to speak out. Because if only a few people right. do, then they're, they put themselves at risk, you know. You're absolutely right. Let's talk about um, – let's talk about your book, which – I've shared with a few people. I know most of America knows about the the fact that you was at the Trayvon Martin trial. Yeah. And and, and this is really what endeared me to you. And one thing that I want to ask you, um, because, Jack, there's so much I want to ask you. Would it be possible if we could do a part two to this show? <laughs> yeah, sure. Happy to. Okay. Okay. Now, I just want I want you to share with the with the audience really this just share a little bit first kind of give them a 
history background of your being at the Trayvon Martin trial. And then I want you, if you can, go into a little more in depth and share more with the listeners than what you was able to share at the book club when I first heard you speak about it, because I know we were limited on time, so we really right. didn't go into it. But well, let me share, let me share some, uh, uh, for, for right now, some, some of the data that, uh, just like I was talking about Waco and about uh, Ron Brown, that the media don't want mm-hmm. you to know. And, okay. and here's, go ahead. you know, sometimes and there are so many things that are designed to help African Americans and end up hurting them. One of them was this program they instituted at the Miami-Dade Public Schools. And the Miami-Dade Public Schools is a huge uh, school district. It's fourth biggest in the country. And it has its own police department, and not just security guards, but a, a sworn officers, 140 sworn officers who take care of the, uh, of the schools. And they're capable of arresting people and putting them in jail. I mean, they're a police department. And, but they were under orders, and this serves a couple purposes. Uh, for the police chief, it had the, the uh, uh, it had the effect of lowering the crime rate. That is, if you don't arrest African American males, the crime rate will go down. For the uh, administrators and for the Obama administration, uh, their goal was to um, ensure that the arrest numbers reflected the you know look like America sort of thing. You know, so even if a certain group was committing more crimes than other groups. Uh, they weren't supposed to record that because that made them look bad, right? The net result of this was that, in uh, Trayvon's case, is that he'd been arrested uh, at least twice that semester. Uh, the one time for for drugs, and they probably would have, you know, slapped his wrist for that one. But the other time was for uh, being in possession of stolen jewelry and having burglary tools. And that should have been an arrest. Had it been an arrest, his parents would have known uh, how badly his life was spiraling out of control. But it wasn't. Instead, under orders from the police chief and from the superintendent, who was just named superintendent of the year, by the way, uh, they recorded it as a – they gave him a – they slapped his wrist for being in, in an unauthorized area of the school and for using graffiti. It was actually, it was that, and then they, when they checked his backpack, they realized that it was, uh, you know, that he had stolen jewelry in it. Uh, So, in other words, instead of going through the juvenile justice system and getting a, a, like, a wake-up call, both for him and his family, he was allowed to skate with just a short suspension. And no one was monitoring him when he was suspended, so he just got to do whatever he was doing, just didn't have to go to school to do it. So there were three that year alone. He missed 53 days of school up before February. And his parents were none the wiser. And uh, so he was allowed to roam unsupervised uh, in uh, Sanford, Florida, on the night of February 26, 2012. And when Zimmerman sees him, he doesn't profile him because he's black or because he's wearing a hoodie. He profiles him because it's raining out, and he's looking in the windows of people's apartments, you know. And he was high. So Zimmerman says, yeah, it looks like he's high. He looks like he's up to no good. Well, he was certainly high. We found that out from his blood. But he was probably certainly up to no good because he was probably casing these joints out. And like the, in the gated community in which Zimmerman lived, which we kept hearing, the gated community, had um, collapsed during the uh, bursting of the Florida real estate bubble. Uh, you know, a quarter of the units were uh, unoccupied. Another quarter were 
filled with like squatters and Section 8 people. The, the, the place was less than half white. Most of the people there were renting, including uh, the woman with whom Trayvon Martin was staying. And the place was, uh, you, know, you know, reporting uh, burglaries and home invasions on a regular basis. This wasn't this gated community that he was, that Martin was profiled because he was black. I mean, plus it was raining. Uh, Zimmerman didn't even mention the hoodie because it was just, you know, you expect to have a hoodie on on a rainy night. But that's how that story started. And the net result was that uh, uh, Martin died. And, uh, uh, you know, no one cared and no one was the wiser. And at that school, they're still doing what they were doing. And that they're doing it nationwide now because it seemed like such a good idea because they were able to reduce the crime rate by 60% in the Miami-Dade school district simply by not reporting crime. Right. So, so can you um, share some of the stuff that they didn't, that was that the media got to hear that the jury didn't get to hear from the trial? Yeah, I mean, that was... And this is the media re- chose not to report it. The jury didn't get to see it because they were, with, you know, withdrawn from the courtroom. But the media saw it. It was part of the trial, you know. And they just chose the judge chose not to let the jury see it. But it encapsulated in um, Trayvon's cell phone were a series of images and videos, uh, and it showed without a doubt that he was doing drugs, dealing drugs. He was into handguns. He was a, had an emerging reputation as a street fighter. He was totally into mixed martial arts. He was uh, increasingly angry, bitter. His mother had thrown him out of the house. He was just shuttling from relative to relative. He was a statistic waiting to happen. Now, if he had been among the other 7,500 young black men who were killed by other young black men that year, you wouldn't have heard of him. If he had been killed by someone whose name was like, you Jorge Zimmerman, or someone whose name was George Zapata, you wouldn't have heard of him. But they ran with the name Zimmerman because they thought he was white, maybe even Jewish, and uh, they created a sensation before they realized what uh, Zimmerman even looked like or who he was. And the net result is that it made, you know, it wrecked the lives of an awful lot of people. Was it true that... Um even though it was a Repub- we know it was a Republican prosecutor that they got pressure from the Obama administration, Eric Holder, to prosecute the trial, or was that just speculation? No, that's true. Um, they may not have even needed it, but that uh, because at the same time, you know, in one of the truer things that Al Sharpton ever said, he says, "If we don't march, there's no trial," and he's right because the police knew they had insufficient evidence to try Zimmerman. And the local prosecutors knew it, too, because it was, you know, transparently a case of self-defense. It had nothing to do with stand your ground, either. Uh, But then the uh, Justice Department weighed in. In fact, the Justice Department helped organize the marches in Sanford, Florida, which brought the pressure on the local prosecutors. Prosecutors handed it over to the state, sort of Pontius Pilate style. And you had a Republican governor you know, who proved to be just as cowardly as anyone else, and they went ahead and prosecuted. And um, wow. they knew they weren't going to get a conviction. You know, they knew they had no case. 
In fact, when I was sitting there watching the prosecutors, I'm thinking to myself, how did they get out of bed in the morning? You know, how did they convince themselves that they should be doing this? Uh, but right. they did. And at the end of the trial, there were a lot of people who thought they threw the case. The prosecutors did, but they had no case. You know, the only conceivable outcome was an acquittal or possibly, you know, if someone they were intimidated it would have hung the jury. Uh, but by sequestering the jury, uh, they assured a, a fair trial. If they didn't sequester the jury, the jurors would have buckled because the outside pressure was so great. Right. And so you have the narrative after the case ended that the jury was all white. Speak to that one, because I, yeah. I know what you're going to say about that one. But go <laughs> ahead, speak to that. <laughs> well, this, this is like uh, the people who lived inside of Waco again. You know, they're all white until you realize they're not all white. Um, there were six women on the jury, right? One of them right. is uh, clearly of African descent. Uh, she's also Puerto Rican. She's Hispanic. But she's more African than, than uh, Barack Obama, you know, by appearance. Now, right. You know, the TV cameras don't see the jury, but the, the media did. They knew, you know. And yet they uh, continually refer to her, her as either, the jury as either all white or all white with one Hispanic, right? Right. Now, the, woman, the, the, uh, the woman on the jury, the Puerto Rican woman on the jury, was um, after the, you know, she was, she, like the other women on the jury, were, uh, pretty clueless of going in. I mean, some of them hadn't even heard of the case, which was remarkable, considering they live in Sanford, Florida, you know, or Seminole County. And um, but the, they were chosen because they didn't know anything about the case, and which meant that they didn't follow the news at all. So they came in kind of like blank slates, I mean, which was for, uh, useful for this achieving justice. But after the uh, verdict, they were sequestered during the uh, the proceedings and during the deliberation. But after the verdict, and uh, and the Puerto Rican woman thought that uh, you know that everyone would congratulate her for you know finding justice, she was savaged, death threats, you know, uh, threats on her children, and her she, was, she had to give up her job, you know, sunk into poverty. She was uh, utterly, totally depressed, and you know, uh, she didn't she couldn't believe what was happening to her. But uh, because she knew stuff that the um, you know, the people who were just watching it casually from outside didn't know. She got to see the whole case, and she knew why um, he was guilty. Uh, he was not guilty, rather, why Zimmerman was not guilty. Right. And see, here, here's, a, here's what I have ran against when I've, when I've talked to people about this case, um, some of which were my own family. They, yeah, they sure. were like, well, well... He used too much. He used too much force. He shouldn't have. Um, Trayvon Martin was only beating them. Um, he he pulled out a gun. He shouldn't have used a gun. Jack, would you speak to those people who use that that um, argument and explain to them what Trayvon had in his system, please? Well, right. In, in fact, there's a case in Kansas City that uh, clarifies a lot of what happened that night. And you may have seen the video for this, Thomas. And that is uh, the, uh, this happened, though, a few months ago, where a fireman got married. Did you ever see this video? Yes, 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 yeah, I and, talked uh, about that. Yeah, and, 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 oh, and yeah. it relates to this case because he, he got drunk. He starts beating up a cab driver. 
they called the police, and there happened to be a, a, a Kansas City PD guy who was doing security for the hotel. So he went and apprehended the fireman, who was drunk and big and rough. And this was all captured on video, the final uh, 15 seconds of the uh, fireman's life. The policeman is trying to apprehend him. And there's this young couple there with the video camera, like, just commenting. Like, and, the, and the cop says, to help. You know, he's having a very hard time subduing this guy. And then the uh, fireman uh, throws, like, a leg lock over the head of the, of, the, of the policeman. He yanks him down the ground, gets him on the ground, just like Trayvon Martin had Zimmerman down, and starts punching away. It took the cop 10 seconds before he realized he could not let this happen any longer before he'd be knocked out. And he pulled his gun and he shoots and kills the fireman. Now, in this case, everyone was white. So the case, uh, the story never left Kansas City. Right. You know, had, had there been some sort of racial element, I'm sure we'd still be hearing it. We'd be marches in the street. Plus, the video captured it all. And you see what happens is when someone's on top of you, punching you in the head, you don't have a lot of time. The, the cop didn't take more than 15 seconds. George Zimmerman took at least 40 seconds because there's 40 seconds of him screaming on the, video, on the audio from the 9-11 call, help me. And uh, what happened is that about 30 seconds into his screams for help, the closest neighbor came out, came out and saw exactly what was going on. It was right in his back, back uh, you know, courtyard. And Zimmerman says, help me. And the guy says, well, I'll call 911. He said, and said, no, no, help me. And the guy goes inside to call 911. And at that point, Zimmerman realized that Martin wasn't going to stop even if there was an eyewitness who was calling 911. He continued it, you know. And at that point, he really didn't have much choice. If he, wanted to, if he waited another 15 seconds, he could have either been dead or you know, paralyzed. Uh, and right. he could have justifiably shot 15, 20, 30 seconds earlier. Right. And that's what people do not seem to understand, that George Zimmerman was getting beat. Right. And, and what, they felt, what, they, what they refused to understand is that he was sucker punched. He, it was a knockout game. He got, he got KO'd by a Martin out of the blue. And, uh, you know, and it, there's, he didn't stalk him or chase him or any of that sort of stuff. He was exactly where he said he was. He he had the police coming. He insisted they come. He was on the phone with them up to a minute before that. No, the, the notion that he stalked uh, Martin uh, was pathetic. And uh, unfortunately, the prosecution pushed that same angle, and they knew they had no evidence. You know, I don't even know why they did it, except to, because they felt under pressure to do it. And they felt like maybe, you know, until the, at least until the trial, they would be on the side of the angels in the media. Wow. See, see, that's kind of like that's kind of like. In other words, that case should have never went to trial. Is that exactly. about the yeah. extent of it, right? Right, and it should never have gone to trial. No, and uh, it went to trial. And as as uh, Al Sharpton said rightfully, if we didn't march, there's no trial. You know, and that's not the way justice right. is done. You know. But Al Sharpton's, you know, <laughs> Al Sharpton's. Um, if there's no justice in his eyes, they still didn't get no justice. But the thing of it is, and I think really what triggered it, and this is kind of a good segue for you to talk about your um, 
book. If I had a son, he would look just like Trayvon Martin. Right. Who made that famous quote? Yeah, that was uh, our uh, president, our duly elected president. And let's face it, if Trayvon Martin looked like George Zimmerman, we never would have heard of George Zimmerman, you know. Uh, exactly. And if he didn't look like the president, we would, we would you know, I mean, not that he looked like the president, but, I mean, that's superficially, I suppose, you know, but it, it was a very right. inappropriate thing for a president to say. I mean, that's he's supposed to be president of all the people, not just some portion of them, you know. Well, share with the listeners a little bit about your book and where you can get them. Yeah, the uh, the book is called If I Had a Son, uh, Race, Guns, and the Railroading of George Zimmerman. And it's available essentially wherever you buy books. I, I would recommend now, uh, it's probably out of the bookstores, but you go to uh, Amazon or if you write, do e-books, go to uh, Kindle or Nook, you know. And um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, pretty widely available. And it's a, um, you know, we're coming up to the, uh, first anniversary of the trial in June, so um, you know it should be back in the news again. That's cool. I, we don't really need to hear it back in the news talking about the trial, but you know it's gonna come up because people gonna get up in their emotions again. But right now there is something that you shared, and this will we'll probably have to finish this. Uh, if you can come back tomorrow, I um, want to finish talking about it because I want, I want you to talk about, and folks, let me warn you, what I'm about to have Jack talk about, and we'll probably finish, finish it up tomorrow. I want you to talk about, actually, you know what, Jack? Talk about the latest um, email that came out about Benghazi. And then after you, after you get the comments, uh, you know, just your thoughts on that and the, uh, the calling of the special select committee by John Boehner, I want you to talk about the first original Benghazi, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. Um well, you know, the uh, email, I mean, Benghazi was like two years ago, dude, so why are we even talking about it? You know what I mean? That was a new right. low in, in uh, right. what do you call it, in the uh, security uh, State Department's uh, communication, uh, where the Tommy Vitor, the uh, National Security Council spokesman, said it was asked about Benghazi. He said, it's like two years ago, dude. Uh, I'm sorry, you don't talk that way. <laughs> you know, there's four, still four dead people. I don't care, you know, how long ago it was. And, it, right. and they're... Um, Justice has not been gotten for them, but um, no, the um, it's kind of an evolved circumstance. But uh, you know, I've been looking at it pretty closely, and uh, it, I, boy, it would take a long time, uh, Thomas, to get into this. I'm not exactly sure where I could jump in, but I would say this now is that I, I would focus on now. If I were a reporter, I am, but if I were a reporter with access to the White House and I was able to ask questions. I'd like to know what the president and Hillary Clinton were doing on the night of September 11, 2012. Because the, you know, it's like as they started saying back in Watergate when people took cover-up seriously, you know, it's not the crime but the cover-up. I don't know that anything was done or not done that night that was that would reflect badly on the White House or the State Department, but I do know that the, that the misdirection immediately afterwards, starting that night, is criminal and that it's inexcusable, and that 
uh, we were allowed to make believe that uh, some sort of video caused all of this, when in fact it was in a, a coordinated attack by a group called Anshar al-Sharia, which was a you know al-Qaeda spinoff. And uh, the problem is from the White House is that they had been telling everyone for the last bunch of months in the re-election campaign that al-Qaeda was dead or decimated at least, and, and there was just a question of mopping them up, and that Libya was a shining new paragon of, of uh, Obama, you know, Middle East policy, and that wasn't true either. So this whole incident had the, uh, the potential to unravel the whole re-election narrative, and so they lied. I mean, that's simply what it came down to, and they got a lot of other people to co- cooperate in the lie, including Susan Rice, who did it five times on one Sunday morning talk show, and they've never been brought to justice because the media won't even ask the questions, the most basic questions. Uh, John Boehner is fairly useless, Speaker of the House, but he appointed a very good guy, Trey Gowdy, to head up the yep. committee. And, and uh, Gowdy is a bulldog. He's very eloquent, former prosecutor. And, um, you know, I know the media will try to ignore it. I mean, they you know, hoping for another Donald Sterling incident or something. But the... Um, there's too much there, and it's too serious to just make believe that it's just, oh, it's just about Benghazi. It's just a you know, Republican conspiracy plot or something. I don't know. They'll try to do that, but it's, I don't think it'll wash. Right. Now, as I alluded to, and we'll get into this more tomorrow, talk, a, talk about a little about the first Benghazi. You know what I'm referring to because you are the one who blew the lid off of um, the investigation into the downing of TWA Flight 800. Yeah, so, and there's real parallels there, Thomas, and that is that in um, July 1996, uh, the Clintons faced a very similar situation, and that is uh, they had the election more or less in the bag. Uh, actually, they had a more secure hold on that election than than, than Obama did in 2012, uh, until the night of July 17, 1996, when a plane was shot down off the coast of Long Island at TWA Flight 800 with 230 people on board bound for Paris. And uh, they immediately, just like Obama in 2012, they didn't go down to the Situation Room. Clinton didn't to, you know, oversee the investigation. And first of all. Uh, there was a big meeting in the Situation Room. That never happens for plane crashes. This was very unusual. But Clinton stayed up in the family quarters with Hillary. And what they were doing was calculating the political exit strategy. How do we get out of this? This is only going to cost us points. And uh, what they resolved, and I think is what, they re- what Obama resolved in 2012, was to just sort of deny and obfuscate and try to kick the can down the road until after the election. And, you know, when Clinton got away with it, I think Obama figured he could get away with it, too, and they both did, in the sense that they both got reelected. Clinton's gotten away with it for the last 18 years because it was one of those things that you weren't allowed to talk about. And it happened just before the explosion in social media and the Internet. Had it happened two years later, they never, never could even try to get away with it. But um, Benghazi happened far enough away and under enough obscure circumstances that uh, I think – uh, Obama figured that, and Hillary figured they could, they could, you know, sort of fudge and lie and obfuscate and, and get away with it, and they did, or they have to this point certainly. And Obama essentially has gotten away with because he got reelected; he can't run again. 
Hillary, you know, is likely to run in 2016, and this is a not will not be a shining star on her resume. Right. So, folks, let me let me set this up for you because Jack is going to come back tomorrow for part two, and we're going to talk. We're going to really get in depth about this. If you all remember hearing stories, whispers from about what was it, 276 um, independent witnesses that said they saw a streak of light that went up from the surface after TWA Flight 800 took off. Right, that's right. Folks, I heard that same thing when it happened back in 1996. I didn't blow it off. I just said, huh, that's interesting. But yeah. then what was it, about two years later that they came out with the center fuel tank um, excuse? Yeah, what was well, it, it took, two yeah, years later? it took later? a long time to, to get around to it. By the time it was over, it was like four years before they wrapped up the investigation. They, they were still trying to find some explanation other than the obvious. So, folks, basically this is, this is what it boils down to in a nutshell. And Jack is the one who blew the lid off this. He wrote a book about it, and he also has a DVD about it as well. I'll post the links for for his websites in just a second. But tomorrow, we're going to talk in depth about the fact that TWA Flight 800 was not brought down by a center fuel tank. It was an accidental shooting by one of our own naval ships because they were doing naval exercises off the coast of uh, Long Island at the time the flight took off. Am I correct in that, Jack? Yeah, I, I think that's a fairly safe assumption, yes. Well, this time, time flies when you're having fun, but, Jack, I will call you after we're off air to um, get details for tomorrow, see if you'll be able to come um, get things arranged. But I really, I really appreciate the work that you do because, uh, you know, it shows that you, not only do you care about the truth, that you care about people. You care enough, and I can honestly say this, Jack, and I'm not, you know, I'm not playing a race card or anything like this, but I appreciate the fact that you care enough about the black community to report the stuff that you that um that you share with me and just for a recap cuz a very dear friend of mine who's listening who's another BTR host who I'm a, I want to definitely connect you with Jack so that she can interview with you she can interview you as well would you share once again what you told me about Waco, because yeah, I uh, guarantee you, everybody who just came in later do not know this because I did not know this. So yeah, on on, on the uh, on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety three, when the Clinton administration sent tanks in to rouse the people, uh, the Christian community in the Mount Carmel community in Waco, uh, they killed seventy four people that day. They had killed six others previously, but among the seventy four people killed that day. There were 39 racial minorities, six Asians, six Hispanics, 
and 27 black people. And uh, the media totally silenced that uh, bit of information. And it's, I mean, I, I, know, I know this because I read through the entire log of the dead, and, they, and I listed them, and they're listed by name, age, and race. The youngest of the blacks, six, the oldest, 60. I, I don't say African Americans because some of them were uh, like West Indians, you know. So, but uh, what they shared in common was their African heritage and their and their death at the hands of the Clinton administration. Wow. And and we'll probably talk more about that tomorrow as well because that just you saying that that gives me goosebumps because what you said up until all this time. Everybody was led to believe that the Branch Davidians was nothing but a bunch of whack jobs. But you know what? There is an image that is standing that's standing out in my in my mind right now because there were kids that was brought out of there. But yeah. now it's kind of interesting that all the kids that were brought out of there, and I think this is what helped with the narrative. They were all white. That's what they wanted you to know. That's what they wanted you to think. And uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's uh, you know just one of those stories that they the media got away with, and uh, because that was before the age of social media, that we would they wouldn't have, couldn't have gotten away with it now because the people from within uh, the community would have been uh, you know sending out their own messages, and, and we would have seen who they were. Wow. Well, my friend, uh, yeah, thank you so time. much. Thomas, uh, tomorrow may not be possible, but certainly within the next week, let's uh, arrange another okay. date and we'll finish this up. Hey, you do a great job, Thomas. Okay. Keep up the good work, okay? Thank you so much, Jack, and God bless you. God bless the work that you do. And we'll just set it, set it up for next Monday then. Yeah, just next set it Monday up for be next perfect. Monday. Yeah, then. that way I'll remember. <laughs> so. okay. okay. Take care, Thomas. Appreciate it. You too. God bless you, Jack. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was my friend, Jack Cashel. Folks, let me tell you something. (laughs) All this time, we were led to believe that the Waco attack was nothing but a bunch of redneck, you know, crazy white supremacists, whacked out cults. Well, we know that the Branch Davidians, it was a cult. We know that. David Koresh was the cult leader. We know he was whacked in the brain. But what I don't understand, and you got to consider the source, it was the Clintons. Why did they allow silence to be As Jack said, had black people knew that back then there were 39 black people killed in that attack, it would have destroyed um, the Democratic Party's image with the black community. That's why the news media was complicit in helping to keep it silent. So, folks, I'm going to have Jack back next week for part two of this show. Arl, 
going to be another good show. I want to thank you all for listening to the Visible Conservative Christians Unleashed here on True Radio Presents and Blog Talk Radio. And I am going to go out with Krista Branch and I Am America. <laughs>